Good morning, Keystone. How are we doing this morning? Uh, how many of you have either uh, had a flight canceled on you or missed a flight when flying before? How many? All right. Yeah, that's a fair, significant amount. Uh, my, my wife and I have not had a great track record of flying in planes over the past year. Uh, so we've flown three times the, plas- the past year, uh, and two of those times, either our flight got canceled uh, or it got delayed so long that we missed a connecting flight and so ended up stuck in an airport for six to, to seven hours at a time. Uh, and, and both of those times, uh, I've discovered I've still got a pretty long way to go in my sanctification process because there's something about being stuck in a crowded airport with two young kids that just brings out the worst in you. And I'm guessing if you've had a flight cancel like that, you've experienced that as well. The the first time uh, we were supposed to fly from Baltimore to Myrtle Beach for a family vacation. Uh, And so after our flight initially got delayed, we got on the plane and then we got out to the runway where we proceeded to sit in the plane for about 45 minutes until they took us back to our gate where we proceeded to sit in the plane for another about 45 minutes until we got off the plane where we sat again for about 30 minutes until they told us, uh, your flight is canceled along with every other flight because no planes can take off right now in light of weather conditions. Uh, And so then after seven to eight hours in Baltimore airport, we finally got a flight out, I think at about nine o'clock that night. And what I found was all I wanted was to get to Myrtle Beach and be comfortable. That I associated comfort with being at the beach and a week-long family vacation, not with being stuck in a crowded airport with two young kids. And I think what that exposed in me is genuinely true of us all, that we tend to associate comfort with circumstances, things going the way that we want, things going according to our plans, that that is what enables us to have comfort. And I think this can especially be a temptation even at Christmas, where we look to kind of all the common traditions and whatever our expectations are of what a nice Christmas looks like for comfort this time of year. But looking to circumstances for comfort ultimately lets us down because circumstances come and go. Maybe that's why there's so often this big letdown on December 26 because all we've been looking forward to is gone in an instant. And not only that, but because difficult, painful, and frustrating circumstances come into our lives that leave us feeling anything but comfortable whether it's a a difficult or broken relationship, the the loss of a family member, pain in our bodies, longings we have that go unfulfilled, a medical diagnosis, conflict, failure in some way, or all sorts of other things that just make us feeling, leave us feeling really, really uncomfortable in our lives. And yet the good news that we have at Christmas and that we come back to over and over again is this that Jesus gave up his comfort at Christmas so that we might find comfort in him. Jesus gave up his comfort at Christmas so that we might find comfort in him. Jesus coming at Christmas teaches us comfort is not ultimately found in our circumstances, in life going smoothly. Rather, 
Comfort is found in Christ in the midst of whatever circumstances we walk through moment by moment. And, and I think here's the upside-down nature of that. So we've talked about this idea of upside-down Christmas. It's often in our most difficult, most painful, most challenging moments or circumstances in our lives that we actually experience the comfort we have in Christ the most. That it's often when life doesn't go how we want it to or plan it to that we experience the comfort we have in Christ more than any other time because Jesus gave up his comfort at Christmas so that we might find comfort in him. This is what we find in Hebrews 2, 10 through 18, which is where we're going to be this morning. And so if you have your Bibles and want to open up there, we'll read those verses together in just a moment. But let me pray for us before we start. Father, we come this morning from whatever's happened this week, from whatever circumstances we're walking through, wanting to have our eyes and our minds and our hearts reoriented around you, reoriented around your glory, around what it means that you came at Christmas as a man. And so God, we we pray that this morning your spirit would work to reorient us, to fill us with hope, peace, joy, comfort, love, not because of what might be happening in our lives or not happening, but because of Christ, who he is, and who we, all that we have in him. So we're praying that you would do that this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 10. Actually, I'm going to jump back and we'll start in verse 9 and then read up through chapter, or verse 18. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given to me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. One of my favorite movies... Uh, and I think I've talked about this movie before at Keystone, is the movie Arrival. It sounds kind of weird on the surface because it's about aliens that come to Earth. It's not really weird like that, but it's about these 12 different aircraft vessels that come down to Earth. And the whole movie really revolves around trying to answer this question. Why are they here? Why did they come down to Earth? What are they doing here? 
And all across the world, people are trying to answer that question. Why are they here? Why did they come down to planet Earth? When we come to Christmas time, one of the questions we should be asking over and over and over again is, why did God come to planet Earth as a man to suffer and die? Why did God come to planet Earth as a man to suffer? And Hebrews 2, 10 through 18 is answering that question. Why did Jesus become a man and come to this earth and suffer? In fact, one of the ways to break up this passage is actually to see how verses 10 through 13, verses 14 through 15, and verses 16 through 18 are each taking their turn answering that question. Why did Jesus become a man and suffer? Each of, each of these three sections is waiting, taking its turn, offering its answer for why Jesus became a man and suffered for us. And so we want to listen to the answers that God gives us in these verses to that question. Why did Jesus become a man and come to planet Earth and suffer? And as we hear the, the answers, we want to look for both the comfort and the challenge that we can find in these answers. And so here, here's the first answer. If we look at verses 10 through 13. Jesus became a man and suffered to make us his brothers. Jesus became a man, came to planet Earth, and suffered to make us his brothers, his brothers and sisters, we could say as well. Notice where verses 10 through 13 both start and end, if you look back at them. They start by saying God's purpose in sending Jesus to this earth was so that he could bring many sons to glory. The reason Jesus came was to bring many sons to glory. In other words, bring many sons and daughters into God's family. And they end by highlighting how Jesus came to make us his brothers and sisters. The word there for brothers can really be translated brothers and sisters. So it's both. And in between those two statements, we're told what had to happen for us to become sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters of Jesus, which is the same thing, right? What needed to happen? Jesus needed to become a man and become perfect through suffering, we're told in verse 10. That it was fitting for God in bringing many sons to glory to make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. It's the idea that when Jesus became a man, he needed to become the perfect man, obeying God every step of the way. And that obedience involved suffering. And it's through Jesus' obedience as a man, which involves suffering, that he gains the record of a perfectly holy life. He's the only one who always only obeyed, even when it cost him everything. It's, it's through Jesus' obedience as a man, which involves suffering and dying, that he gains glory and honor. If you look back at verse 9, it says it's because of his death that he now has glory and honor and is exalted. It's through Jesus' obedience as a man, which involves suffering and dying, that he gains access before God for men and women like me and you. And it's these things that he's gained through his perfect life and his obedience that he then shares with all his brothers and sisters. This is the incredible comfort that Jesus calls us brothers. What's his is also ours. Because Jesus calls us brothers and sisters, what's his is also ours. Here's how I think about that. I'm the youngest of three brothers. I have two older brothers. And being the youngest of three brothers came with its challenges growing up. I was on the losing end of pretty much every single competition we had. 
Whether we played hockey, baseball, wrestled, or had a race, I lost. But being the youngest brother also came with its benefits because I could follow in the footsteps of my brothers or ultimately really ride the coattails of my brothers. That's part of what the idea of Jesus as our founder of salvation is saying, that we follow in his footsteps or we ride his coattails. And and I think especially back to high school for this picture, I, I entered a brand new high school as a like five foot, 95 pound freshman, knowing basically no one in that high school. That's a really intimidating situation to walk into. Like I was terrified. But my older brother Rodney was a senior that year. And he had already been at the high school for three years. And he was well liked by other students and by teachers. And so I gained things by virtue of just being Rodney's little brother. Like I I gained friends, certain friends, just because their older siblings were friends with Rodney and I was Rodney's little brother. There, There was older, more popular kids in the high school who would say hi to me, which is a really big deal as a freshman, right? To have older kids saying hi to you in the hallways, why? Because I was Rodney Kaufman's little brother. See, are are you tracking with me there that what Rodney gained over his time in high school in in part became mine just by virtue of the fact that I was his younger brother. Because Jesus is our older brother, what he's gained now becomes ours as well through faith. His holiness, his perfect obedience is now ours. God sees us as holy because we are Jesus' little brothers and sisters. His glory is, is going to be shared with us. Part of what Hebrews 2 is getting at is that we are going to reign alongside Jesus, ruling over the angels one day, simply because we are Jesus' little brothers and little sisters. And his perfect access before God is is ours, both now and forever. That we can approach God as our father, not because of anything we do, but simply because we are Jesus' little brothers and sisters. And and yet what gets even more amazing as we read through this passage is this. The author of Hebrews tells us in verse 11, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. I think back to my brother, Rodney. There were moments where I knew Rodney doesn't really want me around, right? Like any older brother with a younger sibling. If he had friends over, I knew I'm not supposed to go downstairs and hang out with them right now, right? If we were at a basketball game or soccer game, I knew I'm not supposed to go sit right next to Rodney while this basketball game is going on cheering. Why? Because like any older sibling, there are moments where you might be embarrassed or ashamed to have your little brother or little sister around, even though you love them. Think about, again, what the author of Hebrews says. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. I mean, what's the opposite of ashamed? that he's proud and pleased to call you and me his brothers and sisters. Jesus is like an older brother who enters a room full of his friends. And rather than being embarrassed that you and I are right by his side, he says loudly, hey everyone, this is my brother. You treat him like you treat me. Jesus will say that to anyone, most importantly to his father, who he sits beside right now. Hey, that's my little brother, that's my little sister. You, you treat her like you treat me. Do, are, 
do you see what an incredible comfort it is that Jesus came to live and suffer to make us his brothers and sisters? It, it means when we feel ashamed in this life, we need to hear Jesus saying, you are my brother, you're my sister, and I'm not ashamed of you, and I never will be. That, that when we get overlooked or passed over or not chosen or not appreciated, we need to hear Jesus saying, you are my brother or sister, and I'm proud to call you that. That when life feels like one long disappointment or we feel like we're one big disappointment, we need to hear Jesus saying, you are my brother or sister, and the glory that is mine is going to be yours one day as well. I mean, that idea that Jesus is not ashamed, but he's actually proud to call us brothers and sisters is an incredible comfort. But it's also a challenge because it means we will experience suffering just like our older brother experienced suffering. That we will experience suffering just like he experienced suffering. Not in the sense of paying the penalty for sin. Only Jesus could do that because only he was perfect. But as Jesus' brothers and sisters... We should expect that if God's plan was to make Jesus perfect through suffering, then that's also his plan for Jesus' little brothers and little sisters, us. We will share in the sufferings of Jesus in this life. That's why Peter's going to say in 1 Peter 4.13, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Because our older brother suffered, it shouldn't surprise us when we suffer as well. Christmas does not mean the end of suffering in the present. Rather, it means the beginning of suffering as God's sons and daughters. And so God uses our suffering to make us holy and to one day glorify us. It's the same pattern we see in Jesus' life. He suffers, God makes him holy, he that's the same pattern that gets lived out in Jesus' little brothers and little sisters' lives as well. But there's a comfort even in that. What's the comfort in that? Because as we suffer, we experience the comfort of Jesus even more. Th think about the people in your own life who you are the closest with. Just for a moment, think of someone in your life who you think, I'm really, really close with that person. Here's my guess. That's someone you have suffered with. That you'd, you've suffered alongside of. Or that they've experienced suffering and you've walked alongside them in that, or, or vice versa. Right? Common suffering creates a deep bond. Isn't this why people in the military refer to the military almost as a brotherhood? Because they've suffered together and it's bound them together for life. So too, as we suffer, it binds us together more with Christ as we experience not the same suffering as him, but the same types of suffering that he might have experienced as a man. Why did Jesus come to planet Earth as a man and suffer? To make you and me as brothers and sisters. And we find comfort in our older brother, even and perhaps especially when we suffer in this life and when things don't go our way. Here's the, the, the second answer that we might find to that question in verses 14 through 15. Jesus became a man and suffered to free us from fear. We, we see in verses 14 through 15, the reason Jesus was born into this world was to die. John Piper puts it this way. I think it's a little bit better of a picture. 
He says the incarnation was God's locking himself into death row. That when Jesus took on human flesh, he shut the door and locked himself into death row. That the baby who was born in Cal or in Bethlehem ultimately became a perfect man who would die at Calvary. And so we, we would then have to ask, okay, well, why did Jesus come to die? Why did Jesus come to die? And, and we can see at least two answers in Hebrews 10 or Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. To free us from the penalty of sin and to free us from the power of death. Jesus came to die to free us from the penalty of sin and to free us from the power of death. And in freeing us from those two things, he also freed us from the devil who uses those two things as his main weapons to keep us enslaved and in fear. We, we see in verse 15, or 17, if you jump down there, how Jesus' death frees us from the penalty of sin. It says he's our merciful and faithful high priest and then says he came to make propitiation for our sins. You've likely heard that word before talked about at Keystone. It's this idea that God's condemnation and wrath for our sins fell on Jesus. And so now all we can expect from God is his favor. That's what that word means, removal of wrath and replacement with favor. Jesus was the sacrifice who could die for our sins because he was a perfect man who had no sins to die for himself. So he took our place. What's the comfort in that? Jesus has emptied sin of its power to condemn. Jesus has fully and completely emptied sin of its power to condemn. Therefore, Satan loses his weapon of accusing us and condemning us and causing us to live in constant guilt and shame. Because when Satan hurls accusations at you and me and says, you are such a terrible, awful, sinful person. How could you ever do that? How could you ever think that? How could you ever live that way? We don't defend ourselves. We simply say, my older brother took care of that. And Satan loses his weapon. Like there is this constant, I think, temptation for us that when we feel accused to try to justify ourselves, no, I'll be better, no, Satan, that's not true. We say, yeah, no, I am sinful, but my brother took care of it. Therefore, you can't, you can't accuse me anymore. You can't condemn me anymore. I'm free from the penalty of sin because Christ dealt with it. But there's even more comfort we find in Jesus' death. Because Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 tell us Jesus has emptied death of its power. Jesus has emptied death in all of its forms of its power to harm. I say death in all of its forms intentionally there. Because there's all sorts of ways we might experience types or tastes of death before we ever physically die. Any form of loss in this life is a type of death. Whether it's losing health, losing relationships, losing a job, losing a reputation, losing a certain position, all loss is a type of death. So we might ask, well, why, why do we end up fearing death? Not just final death, but death in all its forms. Why do we fear death in all its forms? We fear death because of what it can steal and take away from us, right? That death can be the loss of what's good, especially in the end, it feels like the loss of all that's good. And we fear death because of its ability to harm us, both in the present or if we don't know what lies after this life, maybe in the future. 
We fear death because of what it can steal from us and how it can harm us or threaten to harm us. And so Satan uses the fear of death to just keep us enslaved in fear and worry over the future. So how does Jesus free us from the fear of death? That's what this passage just said. How does he free us from the fear of death? He destroys the power of death. It doesn't mean that, that we do not still experience death, both our physical death and loss in this life, but rather it means Jesus empties death of its power to ultimately harm us. Because if your faith is in Christ, death can only make you better. That's what we believe, right? Like that's the hope we cling to. That if our faith is in Christ, death can only ultimately make us better. This is why Paul can say the crazy words that sound crazy. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Gain, better. See, death only made Jesus better. It was his death that led to glory and honor, right? That's verse nine. Because of his death, he's now crowned with glory and honor. And so also for us as Jesus' little brothers and sisters, God uses death in all its forms, not only to glorify himself, but also to glorify us. And this doesn't mean that death and suffering are not incredibly painful. It's not all what it means. They hurt. We wish we could avoid them. Absolutely. But it means they are emptied of their power to harm us because in God's hands, death and suffering can only make us better. And because of this, Satan no longer can wield death as a weapon to keep us trapped in fear. There's a great picture, I think, of what Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 are saying here, found in the classic movie, Home Alone 3. The best of the Home Alones, right? No, it's like the knockoff that came five years after the original two, and yet follows pretty much the exact same plot line as the original two, because they all do. Except this time there are four robbers, and they're coming or trying to rob this house of a young boy named Alex who's eight years old because he has something that they want. And like all of them, Alex then has to set up all these traps and all these things to try to fight back against the robbers, right? It's kind of the story of everyone's childhood, eight-year-old fighting back against robbers as they come into your house. And there's this moment that happens in every single one of them that happens in Home Alone 3, where one of the robbers ultimately catches up with Alex, right? Happens near the end, they catch up to him, they've got him, they sit him down and start to threaten him. And in that moment, the robber pulls out a gun and points it at Alex. And you can see this fear on Alex's face as he's got a gun pointed directly at his head. What's gonna happen? And yet in a moment, his fear turns to a smile because he says to the robber, that's not your gun. And the gun that he sees pointed at him is in fact just a dart gun because somewhere along the way, the robber mixed up his real gun that could harm with a dart gun that couldn't harm. And the moment Alex realizes that's only a dart gun, his fear is gone. He says, that can't harm me anymore. And the Robber loses all power over Alex in that instance. That is a picture of Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. The moment we realize death can no longer harm us, but only make us better, Satan loses his power to keep us enslaved to fear of all that might come our way in this life. If in God's hands, death cannot ultimately harm us, but only make us better, 
then that's true of every single other pain and loss we experience in this life as well. But then here's the challenge, and and maybe it's comforting too, but I think it's also a challenge. God often does his best through our worst. God often does his best through our worst. See, freedom from fear doesn't mean the worst won't happen in our lives. It doesn't mean life will go smoothly and be easy and that we'll die blissfully when we're 90 years old. No, the, the worst will still happen in our lives at times. Like the thing that we most don't want to happen and wish desperately that we could avoid. That will happen at times in our lives, maybe multiple times in our lives. But freedom from fear means we no longer have to fear the worst because God does his best through our worst. Think about this. Jesus' death on the cross is the worst thing that's happened in history, right? The death of the Son of God at the cruel hands of men. There's nothing worse that's happened in history than that moment. And yet it's in that moment, the worst thing in history, that God accomplishes his ultimate plan and purpose to glorify himself by both punishing sin and saving sinners. The worst thing that happened in history, God makes the best thing that happens in history. Jesus' death destroys death. God is a God who takes the worst and uses it to accomplish the best. That's what he did at the cross for Jesus. And that's what he'll do in Jesus' younger brothers and sisters' lives as well. By faith, we believe that when life is at its worst. Not because we can see what the best is that's going to happen. We rarely can. Not because we're blindly hoping that maybe something will come from this. Rather, we believe the truth that Jesus' death destroyed the power of death. God brought resurrection from death. He brought his best from the worst. We've seen God do this for Jesus. So we know he'll do it for Jesus' brothers and sisters as well. Maybe you can picture it in this picture. In the winter, we long and hope for the warmth of spring. Right? Like we hope for long days again. None of this getting dark at 4.30 in the afternoon. I mean, 9 o'clock. We long for like flowers to bloom, trees to bloom. Like give me something other than just kind of the gray winter. We long for the warmth of spring to return. Right? We can go outside and not be frozen. And, and why? Are, in that moment, are we hoping blindly for something that won't happen? No, we're realizing we've seen this happen before. We know the long days will return. We know the flowers will bloom. We know we will feel the warmth again because we've seen it happen before. And so in the darkest moments of winter, we cling to that hope. So too, in the darkest moments of our lives, we remember God raises the dead. Therefore, every single death that happens in our lives, every single loss, every single pain is headed for resurrection. Every single one in God's hands. If you are in Christ, God will bring the best from your worst. And so even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we find hope and comfort in that truth. And we also find hope and comfort in the truth that God is with us and he's able to help us in the midst of all that we're facing. 
That's the third answer we see to the question, why did Jesus come to planet Earth as a man and suffer? Verses 16 through 18 then take their turn answering that question and tell us Jesus became a man and suffered to help us in our time of need. Verses 16 through 18 tell us Jesus doesn't help angels. He helps us, humans, the offspring of Abraham. He became a man to become our merciful and faithful high priest. A high priest is both someone who represents people before God, but also someone who is able to help the people. And Jesus is uniquely qualified for that role because he's both fully God and fully man. Because Jesus is a human, he's able to relate to us. He understands us. He gets us. He knows everything we feel, experience, and walk through in this life. Jesus knows what it's like to experience temptation as a human. In fact, as C.S. Lewis has famously put it, Jesus actually knows what it's like to experience temptation more than anyone else because he's the only one who never gave in to temptation. Lewis says it this way. He says, you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down flat. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Verse 18 tells us Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted because he's been tempted in every way. And it also tells us Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He lost his father, likely, and also lost his best friend at one point in his life. He knows what it's like to be rejected and despised. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by one of his best friends. He knows what it's like to stay up all night and not sleep. He knows what it's like to be falsely accused and embarrassed and shamed by other people. He knows what it's like to experience terrible physical pain and just wish that it would go away. He knows what it's like to face death and take his last breath. Not because he's ever sinned, but because he lived as a human in a world broken by sin. Jesus knows what it's like to experience life in our shoes. One of my favorite actors is a guy by the name of Daniel Day-Lewis. He's retired uh, from acting now, uh, but he became famous for his style of method acting. And method acting is this idea where the actor actually seeks to experience and live what it's like in the shoes of the character that he or she is portraying on the screen. And so in 1989, Daniel Day-Lewis was given this role of portraying Christy Brown, a man born with cerebral palsy who became a famous artist. And Lewis wanted to know, what's it like to experience life as someone who has cerebral palsy? So he learned to type and paint using only his feet. And when he was on the, the set of the movie, he refused to leave his wheelchair forcing everyone else to ultimately pick him up, move him around, so he might experience, what's that like? What does that feel like? And he had other people feed him as though he couldn't feed himself. He said, no, what's that like? What, what does that feel like? Lewis wanted to experience all the difficulties and challenges and limitations of living, as, living with cerebral palsy so that he might then accurately portray what that was like. Hebrews 2 is telling us Jesus is the ultimate method actor. He became a man in order to understand and experience the full range of what it's like to walk in our shoes, 
not simply so that he could portray us in a movie, but rather so that he could have compassion on us and help us in our time of need. That's the comfort. There is nothing we face that Jesus is not able to understand and help us through. Think about this for a moment. When we are tempted to sin or when we suffer, what do we most want in that moment? We want someone else who understands us. We want someone else who gets us, someone else who will show us compassion and someone else who might help us in the midst of it. And often we, we get frustrated because we feel like other people don't really understand me and they don't really know what I'm going through and, and they're not really showing the compassion that we long for or, or maybe even it feels like they're avoiding us in the midst of it. Jesus will never misunderstand you. He will never avoid you and keep you at a distance because he doesn't know what to say. And he will never say to you and me, just get over it. It's not that big of a deal. Rather, Dane Orland says it this way, our difficulties draw out a depth of feeling in Christ beyond what we know. That there's a compassion and sympathy in Christ when we suffer and are tempted beyond what we know. Because Jesus became a man and was tempted and suffered. He knows exactly what we're walking through, how it feels, and what we most need. Because the good news is not simply that Jesus empathizes with us and shows compassion to us, but it's also that because he's fully God, he's actually able to help us. And so he knows what we need moment by moment because he's a man, and because he's God, he's able to supply the grace we need moment by moment by moment by moment. This is what Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 is getting at. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Do you hear that? Jesus gets us. He's a man. He understands us. Now hear the next one. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Jesus is a man, he gets us, and he's God. We can draw near and find grace that we need. Whatever you are now facing, whatever pain, whatever difficulty, whatever struggle, Jesus is moving toward you in compassion and is able to supply exactly the grace you need right now in this moment. What what a comfort. Yet there's also a challenge. It's often in our most desperate moments that we most fully experience the help of Jesus. When do we most clearly experience Jesus as our merciful and faithful high priest? When we come to the end of ourselves. When we've blown it again and we know like there's just nothing, like I so desperately need God's mercy and grace. That's when we most experience his help. When we're thrown into a situation and we feel like I have no clue what to do in the midst of this or how to get through it. That's when we call out to Jesus and say, I so desperately need your help right now because I don't know where else to turn. And it's in those moments that somehow, some way, Jesus takes hold of us and helps us through. In fact, that's literally what the word help means in verse 16. It literally means to take hold of someone, grasp onto them, and walk them through something. It's the picture of a surgeon who looks at you before you're about to go under for surgery and says, look at me, listen to me. You are in my hands. I will take care of you. You will get through this. Jesus looks at you and me as his brothers and sisters and says, look at me, listen to me. You are in my hands. I will take care of you. I have hold of you. I will get you through 
this no matter what. Jesus gave up his comfort at Christmas so that we might find comfort in him in whatever circumstances we face in this life. Which just leads to the question I want to conclude with. Are you looking to Jesus for comfort this Christmas? Are you looking to Jesus for comfort this Christmas? If you haven't yet put your faith in Christ, he calls to you and invites you, saying, stop looking to this world and all that it offers, all the little trinkets and distractions for your comfort, because those things will fade. Look to me. I'll never fade. I'll never let you down. I can comfort you. Or if your faith is in Christ, are you looking to him for comfort? Or are you simply looking for comfort in the good things of this life and this season? Are you feeling lonely, ashamed, discouraged, or frustrated in the midst of the Christmas season? Remember, Jesus is able to comfort you. He's your older brother who's not ashamed to call you his brother. Are you feeling enslaved or condemned by sin? Remember, Jesus is able to comfort you. He paid the price for all our sins to set us free from them. Are you fearful over all the ways that death might loom over your life and threaten to steal what is good from you? Remember, Jesus is able to comfort you. Jesus emptied death of its power, and now in God's hands, he uses our worst to do his best. Are you feeling a weight of suffering that is only heightened by the Christmas season as everyone else around seems to be happier than you? Remember, Jesus is able to comfort you. He understands you and knows exactly what you're going through, exactly what you're feeling, and he's able to supply the grace you need moment by moment. Jesus wants to comfort us. He's a faithful and merciful high priest. Are we looking to him for comfort? Are we seeking him? Are we trusting in him? Are we calling out to him for help? He alone is worthy to provide us of comfort. Run to him. Jesus gave up his comfort at Christmas so that we might find comfort in him. Father, we come to you amazed that you would take on human flesh not to come that first time to be enthroned in royalty and have everyone serve you and live in the most comfortable palace in the world, but you came to suffer, to be tempted and to be put to death and then to rise back to life so that we might find comfort in you. God, you you know exactly what everyone in this room is facing. You know exactly what temptations we deal with, exactly what sufferings we deal with. You know exactly what we need. And we pray that as our merciful and faithful high priest, Jesus, you would give us the grace we need this Christmas season to find comfort in you, and ultimately to sing for joy because you are our Savior and our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.